every single other person that's here in this room, take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we are continuing in and almost done with 1 Peter and our series of Identity Matters. A little double entendre there, talking about the matters that pertain to identity, but also making the statement that identity matters when it comes to living on planet Earth and following Jesus. And Peter is replete with identity. He starts out in the first uh, chapter and he shows you who you are in Jesus and what God has done for you and what's waiting for you in heaven. Right off the bat, bringing our hearts to focus on the thing that we rejoice in and we long for so that everything that he could start to say in the rest of the letter would be under the context of a greater vision with our eyes on the summit, bringing into context the reality of the suffering and the hardship of life. It would be a lot easier to hear and to stomach, especially for these Christians, these churches that were dispersed and who were being forced out of their homes and into hiding as they were um, being chased and persecuted by the dictatorial kingdom that they lived in on earth there. And this was written at a time when it was about to ramp up even more so. So God brought First Peter, we look back in history, First Peter for the church at the right time. This is exactly what they needed to hear was how to endure suffering in a type of way that would accomplish some things. So as you look through the book, you'll see there's some motives for suffering for God in the right way, not in the wrong way. And motive number one is to the glory of God, to glorify God. Motive number two is for our assurance that we are saved because if you can suffer hardship in the world and still love Jesus, still follow him and do the right thing, then that's proving you're part of that good soil and not the soil that's choked up by the thorns and, 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 and scorched by the sun because you're enduring. Time is revealing your faith is genuine. So suffering gives God glory when we suffer properly. It gives us assurance. And then thirdly, this we see it actually will bring others to salvation as people see light in us, they see something different in us. And Peter, kind of in the middle of the book, culminates it with this idea of being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Today, we're going to go into chapter 5, and we're going to talk about Christ-like shepherds. God's vision and God's words and exhortation to his shepherds, his pastors here on earth. And we're going to see why that plays into everything else we've been talking about. So, I want you to look at the screen. We're going to talk about everything up to this point. Our inheritance. And then here's where the identity comes in. Maybe it gets lost as you think, well, I didn't see identity. I want to remind you. He started out first in chapter one. He, he led into this exhortation to live holy as he is holy here during the time of your exile. And then he goes on to show what holiness looks like, what the type of life and conduct that would be considered holy looks like in your respective temporary identities on earth. So he, he shows, okay, what, about it? what does it mean to live holy as a citizen under government that's imperfect? What does that look like? He shared that. What does it look like to be a slave? Can't really relate to that today, but we do know what it's like to have bosses, to have people above us, authorities above us, to have to work under, masters like people. But what does it look like for a slave to live during that time and to have holy conduct that would change the world and glorify God? What does it mean for the, those who carry the identity of wife? The woman who is married, who is now a wife, what does that holy, I, a holy life look like in the face of suffering? 
He addresses holy husbands. Then in chapter 3, he says, all of you. Now he brings it into all of us. And we heard in chapter 3, he began to talk about all Christians. And he, 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 he leads it to culminating into this great exalted example of Jesus. All of this that he has said, all of these practical things, all of these things that we can see that he's saying, live like this in this circumstance on earth to fulfill living holy as he is holy culminates in this exalted reminder and example of Jesus we've seen from the end of chapter three all the way to chapter four. Christ also suffered in the flesh, leaving you an example, he says. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. We see what Paul, Peter's doing here, right? The last few weeks, he's then turned his mind back to the church. Exalted the example of Jesus. Now he's beginning to end his letter by addressing all of us. Trust your, yourself to a savior while doing good. Suffer properly as, a, as, as one who's suffering for the right thing, not for the wrong thing, because we're going to suffer regardless. And then you come to chapter five, and now he brings up a different identity. A select few of people who would carry the identity of elder, shepherd, pastor, and what he has to say to them and the type of holy or Christ-like shepherds that God would have on planet earth. Look at this next slide. Suffering according to God's will. This could be culminated in the whole book. Your identity matters when it comes time to suffer. And if you know who you are and you know what God's required of you based off where he's called you to in the respective areas of your life, those three things will be accomplished. That's why we rejoice in suffering because we see it working for us a greater eternal weight of glory. It's not just random pain. The enemy wants you to think that. So here's the big question because I don't want to give any illusion that we talk about suffering casually as if it's easy to go through. Especially here in the world we live with, if we're being honest, we don't suffer like they did. And life is already hard enough as it is to even think about being in the situation that they were in where the whole world is actively against them and not passive, ag- passively aggressively against them. And then sometimes actively, but actively against them every single day, cheering the death of Christians, which we are headed towards. That is not maybe going to happen. It is heading that way. How in the world is any church, or let me say this, how is any flock able collectively together as one to live up to this example we've seen in First Peter? I think that's a good, humble question because... It, it, it assumes that none of us think that we can actually accomplish this in the strength of our own flesh, can we? And, and if, if, if we left here thinking, you need to go out and go do this by the power of your own strength, you would give up. All of us would give up because we cannot. The flesh is weak. It is no help at all, Jesus says in the book of John. We need God. We need the power of his spirit. And we're going to see today, we need his grace. The high calling of Christ-like suffering. Here's kind of the culminating question. How can any flock, any church live up to this? So here's what we're going to look at. What type of churches, what type of flocks are able to live up to this? And this is where the context of the passage comes in. Three things. First, this. The type of church that is able to live up to this is the type of church that is led by Christ-like elders, shepherds, pastors, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, 
Peter says this, so, that's a, that's a uh, moving on, transitioning word. That's a, because I've said everything else, because now I'm addressing the church. So this now, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, everything that's been written in First Peter is not something we are expected to just figure out on our own. Actually, God, when he, through Jesus Christ, set up the church by the covenant of his blood, which we will observe here after the message and be reminded of, that he secured for himself a people. And as we're going to see, and as we've already read, who he himself is the chief shepherd, the ultimate shepherd over his church, has left us on earth and wants us to be a church together, a community, more than just community, a family together, but that family has to also have leaders above it, leaders who are like Jesus, representatives on earth who will lead in the way Jesus would if he were here now. This is part of God's design. He sets up with each flock elders, and then he sets, wants deacons to be there to help serve and deal with things, and the order of God's plan is set up. And the type of churches that will live up to this are the type that are led by these holy shepherds, these Christ-like shepherds. Now, I'm going to just talk off the, talk, like, let you into my world. It is strange to be up here, to be one of your pastors, and to talk about us ourselves. So this is addressing us, and then you get to listen, and then at the end, you kind of get to be brought into and exhorted yourself. So let's look at this. Elders on the screen. I believe that there's a confusion in our day. The overwhelming title that we give to men who fulfill the call of shepherd, we call them what? Pastors. The Bible never calls them pastors. Pastor is the word that represents what the Bible says that they do. It's, it's the action. Pastoring is what elders do. Shepherds pastor. But we've kind of in our culture led it to where we now have the title of pastor. That's okay because the title there helps us right off the bat understand what it is these men are doing who are called to this position. So, but I believe there may be confusion that maybe elders different, pastors different, and then you go to some churches where there's like bishop, there's this, there's this, there's this. There's the Bible gives one, one phrase for a man who is to lead the church and feed it and pastor it. Elder, and there's a couple other that he uses, but they're all talking about the same person. So if you see elder, think pastor. If you see pastor, think elder, right? And you're like, well, here at this church, we have pastor and elder. Yeah, we're actually trying to meld those back together the best we can and not just cut off the, the cultural uh, nomenclature at the ankles and just work our way towards it. So when you hear elder here at the church, which I want to have our elders stand up right now. If you're an elder and you're in here, please stand up. These men have been called by God 
They've felt the calling on themselves and, and they've been tested and then hands have been put on them and they've been prayed over and now they carry the weight of the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. I myself will be included in that as well as Bjorn, as well as Todd, who's out of town today. Thank you, gentlemen. Love you guys. I'm gonna say more good things about you personally here, here in just a little bit. Elder means pastor. Pastor means elder. That's the point I'm trying to make. The, the, the first thing we need to ask ourselves that Peter is going to exhort the elders in is what they do. What is it that an elder does? An elder does this. He shepherds. Look at your scripture. He says this. So I exhort the elders among you. And then Peter says this. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter uses a word that I do not want us to miss. He uses this word exhort. So I exhort you, the elders among you. And then Peter does something else. He includes himself as an elder, as a fellow elder. Why is this significant? Why do we need to take a few minutes now and and focus on what Peter just said here? Because Peter is being the shining example of what he's gonna now exhort us and the the pastors in each church. He's gonna be the example we can look to and look past him to see Christ as an example of humility and being an example. So notice this, he says, I exhort. He doesn't say, I command. He says, I exhort. Very interesting because he introduces the letter and he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Similar language happens in the book of Philemon. If you go read Philemon, Paul writes to this this guy and he appeals to him and he says to him, I, through the power of God, have a clean conscience. I could command you to do the right thing. He said, but I do not want to do that. I'm going to beseech you and use the same word, exhort you to do the right thing, and then I'm I'm paraphrasing, but Paul says, because I want your obedience to be something that's done willingly, not under compulsion. If you read here, Peter is going to say the same thing, willingly, not under compulsion, a little later. So Peter is doing the same thing we see Paul doing, where he's 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 not taking use of his authority and demanding that us elders be a certain way. He's coming alongside, and he uses a word, he says, I exhort, which literally means to come alongside. I'm gonna walk next to you, and I'm gonna say, all right, let's do this, let's go. I'm gonna point you in the right direction, and we're gonna do this together. It's a beautiful picture. So elders, pastors, Peter is exhorting us. He's coming alongside us as a fellow elder, And he also says this, and also as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and the context of suffering, I saw it. I saw Jesus suffer myself. I understood that he went through all of these sufferings that I'm saying we should live up to as well. And he says this, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is dispelling all grandiose thoughts of looking at him as a superhuman. No, I am a fellow elder among you. I also have to live up to the example of the sufferings of Jesus. And I also have to wait for the glory that is to be revealed. I'm going to partake in it as well. I'm one of you. Now, this is also reinforced in the language here. He says, as I exhort the elders among you, where did you guys, we, 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 the, the elders are lost among the sea of the sheep. Why is that? Because the elders are sheep as well. I'm a sheep. They're a sheep. 
There's only one elder that is the elder, and that's Jesus Christ. My identity of pastor could disappear tomorrow, but you know will not disappear? The identity of sheep who desperately needs a shepherd. Every single one of these men need shepherding. We all need shepherding. We come from among you. And so God calls people to different identities. Among the sheep are a few that are called to this calling of elder and pastor. So what do they do? He exhorts them and he says this. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. And then he uses that word again. That is among you. So now you look around and you think, who are the people that I am to be shepherding? It is those that I am among. It's the family. It's those who, who, who come together and we are together. Now, this is a lot more complicated in our day-to-day to know who we are shepherding. I think it's a lot easier for them, for the shepherds, to know who their sheep were, that they were, they were called by the Holy Spirit to shepherd. It's a lot harder today because there's churches everywhere and people can come in and visit. Am I to shepherd, responsible for God, to shepherd and, and to be held into account the soul of the person being shepherded by the person who just casually comes in here and listens to preaching every once in a while? Is that part of my duty? It's a good question I'm asking. It's not rhetorical. It's a legitimate question that has to be pondered because that person may go to a different places. Which pastor and which shepherd are we going to see? I'm going to get ahead of myself. Which pastor, which shepherd do the sheep have a responsibility to be subject to? Is it every pastor that exists all over the world? Who are the sheep's shepherd and who are the shepherd's sheep? We have to work even harder today versus this day to make that an identity and to know that. What do shepherds do? What do pastors do? What do elders do? They are to shepherd the flock that belongs to God. Then he addresses what shepherding is. He describes it this way. Shepherding is exercising oversight. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, comma, let me explain what that is, exercising oversight. And then he's gonna talk about how that should be done, but we're not gonna get there yet. Let's talk about exercising oversight. Think about the word exercise, right? What, what do you, it's something that you actually have to put into work. It's, it's a training. It's a constant uh, regimen of actually doing something over and over and over again. Exercising also implies a training. You're getting better at it. God wants his shepherds actively involved in the life of church and actively exercising, putting into motion what? Oversight. It's just like the position I'm standing here. I can kind of see everyone. This is what a shepherd should do. And and our mind is supposed to go to the example of actual sheep and shepherd. God has created sheep specifically, I believe, so we could have this symbol, this thing to look to and really understand just how much it is we need to get this right. Because sheep need shepherds. Guess what? If a sheep does not have a shepherd, they die. It's not an if it's, 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 it's a matter of when they will eat the wrong thing, they will drink the wrong thing, they will walk off the wrong thing, and if they are able to somehow live in the world and not eat, fall off, drink, or get themselves killed by their wandering, they will be killed by wolves and animals or starvation because they do not have a shepherd. Like This, this is this type of animal. God created this animal that needs this type of communal togetherness and shepherding, and then he uses it to help us understand why we need this ourselves. 
because we all are like sheep, the Bible is declared throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, who go astray constantly. The shepherd is the man who's there, who oversees. And he's looking out and he's seeing how everyone is. And, and those who are doing well or who are in the confines of where they need to be and they're, they're doing well, okay, they, they need a, a little attention. But you're looking at the ones on the outskirt who keep going off, keep wandering off into the distance who keep going off and getting lost in the wilderness, the shepherd has to go find. And so exercising oversight would mean that us men, us elders, have the duty of we have to know what's going on in the life of the body. We have to know where people are. Are they falling away? Are they Spiritually, how are they? We, we have to know. So, so that means we get to be the ones who kind of get in your business and it's uncomfortable. And you can feel the hand of God behind every pastor pushing them to get involved. But you can, you can feel the claws of the demonic world trying to stop this life-saving shepherding process constantly. In your own life, the elders feel that as well. There's a war going on and God very much wants his flock to be taken care of. And so he appoints elders to assist in making us the type of churches that can actually honor and glorify what's being taught in First Peter. What do shepherds do? They shepherd. What is shepherding? Exercising oversight. How then should they do this? This is where it gets very important. Because we we must get this right. Elders, pastors, this is what we must do. And the sheep get to hear God speak to us. Let's look at the screen. It says this. How should they exercise oversight? Well, we get three don't do it this way. And we get three do it this way. This is what we need to get. The first thing is this. He says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, which means constraint, not being forced into the duty of shepherd, shepherding. And we, we know that's what that means because he follows it up with the positive by saying, but willingly, comma, as God would have them. God wants his shepherds to be willing in the duty of shepherding. If you were called to it, You willingly step into it. You're not forced into it. You can't force anyone into this job. And if you do, you're going to have someone who's motivated by something other than what we're going to see a little bit later is eagerness. Motivated by some type of fear or some type of selfish thought. And when you're forced to do anything after a while, what happens? You're done with it. I'm done with this. Same thing goes for serving too, right? You're forced into serving. You'll do that for a little bit and you'll get fed up if it's under compulsion. God doesn't want his pastors to be operating under compulsion, but he wants them exercising oversight willingly. Second, not, he says this, not for shameful gain. Where's your mind go immediately with that? Money, right? Motivated by greed. A a man who would stand before you as God's representative, and the whole motive of his heart would be some type of shameful gain. Money's the easy one, but there's other shameful gains that a man standing up preaching the word, having the, the position and the title of Pharisee, I'm making a correlation, pastor, a type of heir, a type of gain of status and, 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 and pride-inducing, invigorating sense of self could be accomplished by the high status of pastor. I'm actually thankful that I live in a time where the status of pastor isn't as quite respected in the world's eye anymore because that temptation feels a little less, right? You're kind of the, looked at as a 
greedy politician, and that's because of the greedy bad pastors before that have put bad names onto things. And every pastor who carries the title of pastor is a walking nuclear time bomb. If he's not keeping his heart right with God, could explode and be one of the ones who go right there into helping assist that type of wicked reputation that's been set. The sheep need pastors who pastor not for some type of shameful gain. If you go to John chapter 10, you see the example of Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He's not a hireling. Jesus says, if you have someone who's just hired to do the job, what does he do when things get rough, when the wolves show up? They leave and the wolves devour him because the guy's not going to lay down his life for the sheep if what he's doing it for is for some type of shameful, selfish gain. God knows the heart of every person who holds the title of pastor, whether or not that's their motive. He says, not for shameful gain, but, what does he say? Eagerly. What's the, what's the uh, uh, experience of an eagerness, right? It's like, a, it's like you, you're, you're, you're in a race and you start before the gun goes off because you're so eager to get going, right? Isn't that the type of pastor you want? You want one that's willing and eager to serve you, to help you. To, to, to do their duty, who's excited about getting to serve God that way, right? Their, 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 their eagerness isn't dependent on, well, pay me first. Pastors, especially in America, need to get, get into their mind the sense of, I w- will have to get used to eventually not being able to do this and make my main source of living through the body as persecution gets worse and worse and worse. That'll be the real test, right? And by the way, the majority of your elders here are not paid. Todd and I are. We get to devote our time to studying this word and coming in and, and preaching it to you. But the majority of your elders are willing and eager to sacrifice hours upon hours upon hours on top of the life they already live and the work they already do and the stress they already have in their own families to be able to devote it to exercising oversight. I think that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And it also helps keep Todd and I, who do get paid, uh, under some accountability. This is why we have a plurality of elder and not one guy is getting to be the show guy because we want Jesus to be the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd. And we all must, must hit what this passage is saying. And it's gonna culminate in this idea of humility. Spoiler alert. None of us are naturally humble. We have to be humble. Eager is what you want. Someone who's eager and doesn't matter what they get out of it. They're eager to serve because they're serving the Lord. Then he goes on to say this, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then verse three says, it's not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering, but being an example. Now let's talk about this word domineering. Pastors are not supposed to be harsh, intimidating, and literally that word has the idea of to subjugate. So you're going to be told here by the scripture to subject yourselves to your elders, but the elders are not to take on the duty to make sure you subject yourself. Does that make sense? I want to give us a little bit more context of what this type of leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 20 with me. Matthew chapter 20, and let's hear it from the mouth of our Lord. Twenty twenty. 
immediately some of you started to smell masks and burnt trash and your Taco Bell wasn't delicious at all. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. See what the scripture says. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this would be a disciple, came up to him, Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She asked him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. There's that word. That's what that means to domineer, to lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Among who? Among my disciples. Among those who would lead the flocks. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I wonder if Peter's thinking about the words of his Lord when he's writing 1 Peter 5. And he's thinking, shepherds, do not be domineering. I remember what the Lord said. This is not going to be the case where we cannot lead. Pastors cannot lead the way the world leads, where it's domineering and it's forcing people to do what they think that they should do. It's, it's like what Peter is doing, where Peter is exhorting. That's why Paul, that word's used all over. I'm, ex- I'm coming alongside you. I'm one of you, with you. I'm not telling you to do anything that I myself am not having to do. And we're going to do this together. Come on, let's go. Would you, would you want leaders like that? So if so, that's what's going to motivate. That's what's going to help. That, that's what Jesus did. Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself to the point of a servant and found in human form. He came into the world and he lived next to us and he walked with us and he came obedient to who? His father, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what was Jesus the whole time? Was he some uh, high and mighty, money grabbing, like super self-exalting, like bow down and worship me even though he deserves it type of mentality where he looked down his nose at people? Was that Jesus? No, that was all the religious leaders in that day that he was trying to expose. That he looked out and he saw the people... And he was moved with compassion because he saw people without a shepherd, lost and dying and having no one to look to as an example. And he's seeing the weight of everyone that needs that. And he's moved with compassion. No, he came as the form of a servant and he humbled himself and he he washed his disciples' feet, dirty, stinky feet. My fellow pastors, this is speaking to us. This is what Summit needs And from my vantage point, church, of the men that that I work alongside of under the title of pastor, I would would trust my life in these men's hand. They, They love me. I see the love emanate from them. I see the love emanate for this church. They love you. But we cannot be domineering. I also need to say a little thing. Because we need to balance this, do we not? The word domineering in our culture today has, has found itself, I would say, uh, 
among words like racist, bigot, and woman, where they don't mean what they actually mean. They've lost their meaning. They've been watered down. People have screamed and cried wolf so much that now domineering, here's what it means in our culture, if you would agree with me or allow me to, to, to bring this out. I, I believe we tend to think domineering means he said what I didn't want him to say. I believe we've associated domineering with he's actually telling me to not sin. I believe we, we sometimes confuse domineering with that man who has He's trying to get my business and and tell me what I should do according to the word of God. And we say he's domineering. And then we leave, we go to another church and then we use our mouth to talk about how domineering and horrible and abusive that that pastor was simply because he was trying to do his job as a pastor. And then we carry that all over the place. I'm not saying everyone, but I see that replete in our culture. I see that replete in our culture where we're all victims and, and everyone's a victim. I'm, we should be ashamed of ourselves. We are experiencing a fraction of what these people are experiencing in Peter's day. And yet we want to throw out the type of words that we reserve for the people who were sawn in half for the faith. Hebrews talks about. Whose skins were, were flayed from their body. Who were boiled alive. And we try to call ourselves victims. And that like we're so abused. I'm not talking about the actual moments of it. But this must be said. And we need some resiliency, some thick skin. I don't, see the, I don't see an instinct in pastors today being domineering. I see an instinct in pastors to cower and be cowards and be too afraid to say what needs to be said. Does anybody else see that? We need men who will actually pastor and who will be willing to go through the, the mockery and the shame of people hating them for it. But because we love you so much, we come alongside you and beg you and plead with you and beseech you. Come on, your souls are on the line. Let's follow Jesus for the rest of our life. We have to do it too. Come on, let's do it together. That's what we need. That's what we need. That's what we want as pastors here. That's what we want to be, broken men who need more of the mercy of God than the applaud of men. We're doing this together. We're among you. Let's do it together. And it culminates, the opposite of this is what? Being an example. God wants to call, God calls men. In the book of Titus, Paul said, I'm sending you out into Crete on the island. The goal of planting a church is to appoint elders in every single one of them. Appoint elders. Sheep need shepherds. Sheep need shepherds, but they need a certain type of shepherd. So if you look at Titus, you look at uh, uh, 1 Timothy, you will see qualifications You will see only certain type of men can carry this. And if they do not live up to the qualifications, do not appoint them. And if they lead for a good while and they no longer start to meet the qualifications, they need to step down and go back into their position of sheep. Because the church needs examples to follow. Oh, that's how you parent. That's how you uh, uh, follow God and read the word. That's, how, that, that, that's what it looks like. He's like Jesus before me, understanding that he's not perfect. He's not Jesus, but he is the shining example like the apostles were of a man who's still in the flesh, who's yielding to the spirit of God and taking a step and walking alongside the ultimate paraclete, the Holy Spirit. I can follow his example. talking about myself here, talking about my fellow brothers here. The church needs examples. 
So the type of church that's gonna be able to live up to this type of suffering that comes into the world is a church that's gonna be led by holy, Christ-like shepherds. But it doesn't end there. Look what Peter says. Peter encourages the elders by saying, and when the chief shepherd appears, verse four, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This has been a theme in 1 Peter, the expectation of the revealing of Jesus coming back and all that means for it, right? So all of the hardship that I could sit here and talk to you about that is of being a pastor and the behind the scenes things and the, the, the pain and sometimes the, the hurt along with the joys are all of that's worth it in the context of the chief shepherd's coming. And he sees and I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The chief shepherd is coming. Jesus is beautiful and wonderful and awesome. He's not a dictator. He's a shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. And we want to emulate that. And your pastors are to be an example, which means this. That means these, these qualifications for your pastors are, are meant for you. It's not that, hey, they have to live up to this And you can't, it's, no, you need someone who can show you it can be done, yield to the spirit and then come alongside you and help you do it as as well. So this is why he says this next thing. He doesn't just end it at the top. He brings it now into the rest of the church. Five, likewise, he says. Now, like I've talked to the elders specifically about this theme of humility, which is what's shining. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Where have we seen that word subject again? So the second thing we see in churches that will actually be the type of churches that will endure the suffering and glorify God are the ones who have Christ-like shepherds and the ones who have willing submission. Not submission that's under compulsion. This is the same type of submission that we're talking about all the other identities for citizens, for slaves, for wives, for husbands. He used this word sub, be subject again, which carries with it a willing, I'm willingly putting myself up under someone, not forced to do it, willingly doing that because I see this is how God's wanting to set his church up. And so, but he calls out a certain type of people in the church. He says, you who are younger, do you think that this means that only the younger church? You think it means only the younger have to subject themselves to their pastor's? What do you, shake, shake your head yes or no. What do you think? Why do you think he's singling out the younger? Oh, that's the question. We don't know, but we can, we can assume, we can surmise, we can guess. I think it's because the younger have the tendency to be the most rebellious. The, the younger are the ones who struggle with authority. The younger are the ones who are zealous and passionate, and we need the zeal and the passion of the young. The young, if you're a young person or if you're a young Christian that can apply either way there's a level of zeal you have that is wonderful that's beautiful the church needs that but sometimes your zeal can be like instead of just swapping a a fly or a wasp off someone's shoulder you take a shotgun and you blast the whole shoulder off trying to get rid of the wasp right you've got to be careful and the one thing you need more than anything else is the type of heart that Jesus had where he was submissive, willingly submissive to what the Father wanted and he took one step at a time in the Father's will. And for good shepherds, for those who are trying to watch over your soul genuinely, who are studying this word and trying to apply it to your life, you who are younger, do not let the enemy stir up the, uh, the, the passion that belongs to God for him 
to use it in the name of some righteous intent in your mind to destroy the work of God at large. So he wants you to really hear younger be subject to the elders. But this extends to all of us. A church that's willingly submissive to the, the structure that God's made, willingly submissive to, to elders that won't force you to be submissive, willingly submissive to, to the elders who are gonna embody the Christ-like leadership that's not like the world where they lord it over you, willingly submissive to elders who are called to lay down their life for you. The church has to be functioning the way that God asks. So a church that has willing submission and it culminates in this, here's, the, here's kind of the crux of it all. He says this, now all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you now, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The type of church that's gonna flourish as the world gets worse and worse and worse is the church that has Christ-like elders, that has willing submission, and that has humility the type of humility that brings the grace into your life that you need to be able to do the things that are impossible in the flesh to do for God. He says here, clothe yourselves. Interesting wordage. We're all sitting here with clothes. We all are giving some type of visual off. Clothes you can see, they, they give a presentation. Like Just like we put clothes on, we're putting humility on. We want our brothers and sisters to see it, all of you. I don't want you to see a rebellious anarchist, uh, backbiting, uh, fighting, uh, tense, like you're always uh, one step away from like falling off of my approval. Like, you know, uh, you're a politician and, you, uh, you know, I'm your constituent and you're supposed to do what I say because I pay for you type of mentality. Leave, get that out of the church. God wants this humble clothing towards one another, all of us. He says, clothe yourself, all of you with humility, which is the idea of not thinking too highly of yourself, putting yourself low, not high, not doing what the sons of Zebedee and her mom wanted to do for Jesus, where Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about, where all they could think about was the glory of being at the right hand of God. My children are gonna be the number one, they're gonna have the trophy, and then yeah, I'm gonna sit at the right hand of God. Like No one goes into the pastoral ministry and leadership. If you see someone who has that, if we can see it in the testing process, they will not be an elder here and should not be an elder anywhere. It's humility that we must have because we have to be an example of humility because what the whole church needs is humility towards one another. And what does that accomplish? And then we're done. That accomplishes grace. He says here, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble from old Testament to new Testament. This is very clear that the type of people that God is with next to and works with are the type that he actually can, who aren't filled with a sense of self-righteous pride. Those who are contrite and broken in heart, who do not think of themselves too highly, who are not self-deprecating, but who understand they have nothing within themselves to accomplish the things for the Lord to do. And without him working, nothing will get done in their life. And they know that. And so they spend their whole life trying to appeal and lean on the power of God. God says, I am with that person. I'm next to them. And according to this, if you do not have that humility and your life is filled with your own selfish efforts of works and energy. You look down on others. You're always judgmental and you don't ever see a need for you to change or to learn from one another. No one else can ever tell you what to do. You see that as a badge of honor. You, you should expect that God is going to oppose you. But you can expect those who are humble are gonna get something. 
He gives grace to the humble. Isn't grace the number one thing we need, church? Grace being the unmerited favor of God. Grace being the actual thing that God has that we do not have that will accomplish what we cannot accomplish, which is why we cannot get to heaven on our own. No matter what we do, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. Nothing by grace You have been saved. God has given you what you did not deserve. He's given you what you could not obtain. He's given you what you could never find anywhere else in the world or money or material or your own efforts and exertion. He has it and he's given it freely. But he only gives it to the humble. Your salvation comes through a humility of recognizing you are a sinner under the wrath of God and needing his grace and pouring out your heart for that grace. And our, our sanctification together to be beacons of light in a lost and dying world are dependent on us remaining in that same humility and the power of the Spirit. Paul said to the Galatians, did you begin in the Spirit only now to be made perfect in the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. That's no. You begin in the Spirit by humility and the grace of God and we continue in it every single day of our life. And if you pay attention to your life as time goes on and God lets you see just how wicked you are and how unable you are to do the right thing, it will bring you to your knees in begging God for grace and help every single day. That's the type of people we need to be. It's a church led by humble leaders, willing submission and humility of all of us, beaming and, and, and bleeding humility, the type that Jesus had and showed us how to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for being patient with me. Thank you for your mercy. I pray all of us would fill your spirit, we would let you in, we would not resist how you're trying to convict us in your kindness and gentleness, but we would let you in. We'd confess sins. We'd not let that, that bitter, resentful spirit that elevates ourselves above others to win, and we would, we would squash that with your help. And we'd remain on a humble level where we see our brothers and sisters around us in the same disposition As Peter said earlier, scarcely saved, but for you intervening, we are still lost in darkness and sheep without a shepherd. And God, I pray for us as the elders, that you would help the elders of Summit Church to be shining examples as you are preparing us to suffer first. That we would take that calling and suffer first so others have hope to look to when they suffer. Father, sustain us and help us. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus.